this morning's scripture reading is from the book of Habakkuk, chapter 3, and we're going to read it in its entirety. I'll give you a moment to find it. It's just right of the center of your Bible. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shingoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor has covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hands, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushion in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and withered. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth to its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury, and you threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruits be on the vine, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God The Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Nick. I am the answer to the question, why is Jeff holding that handheld mic this morning? I uh, 
am a covenant member here at Bethany. I am a missionary here in town um, trying to tell youth, young adults, teenagers about the love of Jesus. I work for Young Life, and I'm going to be preaching out of the book of Habakkuk, which is a sentence that maybe has never been said ever. I want to start by asking you a question. What drives you? What defines you? What is the ultimate truth in your life? What do you hold as the driving, controlling principle of who you are? Think of the example of a professional athlete. This is an example that Paul himself used. Their life is designed around a single goal. Everything is about success in, on the field or on the court. It drives everything that they do, what they eat, how much they sleep, how they spend their days training and studying. Paul says even the phrase, they beat their bodies because of that singular driving force, because of what they have in mind. Put another way, I want to tell you a story. Chuck Swindoll is a well-known preacher, um, been on the radio for many, many years, written a lot of books, uh, was president of a, of a major seminary for a while, kind of a well-known preacher. And after he got done preaching one day, he came down off the stage and a little boy ran up to him and said, Pastor Swindoll, Pastor Chuck, today we came across the country to hear you preach because today is my daddy's birthday. And what he wanted more than anything was to come and hear you talk about God. And Pastor Swindoll was like, oh, I'm flattered. That's very nice. And asking him some questions. And then the little boy said, my daddy loves Jesus. And, and, and that, I heard that and it was so impactful to me. Would that be how I am described? Is that the central, most defining characteristic of my life? When people ask, who is he, would the answer be, he loves Jesus? What have you made ultimate? I confess to you that that's not always the truth about my life. I have made other things ultimate. I have put other things in the top and first position in my heart because of my sin and because of my lack of trust and what we're going to talk about today I have made other things ultimate. What have you put in the ultimate place in your heart? We're going to look at Habakkuk besides being fun to say and hard to find. It deals with the problem of evil. It asks the questions of why. It asks about injustice and pain and evil and suffering and if God is all good and all powerful and in control, how can there be so much evil in the world? Why, God? And when I, when I read the news this morning, I asked, why, God? How could you allow such deep darkness and evil to exist? How could you allow helpless ones to have their lives taken from them. Because life is sacred. Life, there, there is sanctity in life. That life comes from God. And God, how could you allow such a sacred thing to be snuffed out, 
Why, God? And we're going to look at the book of Habakkuk and ask those questions and see that there's no easy answers, that there, there's no simple and straightforward answer that makes you go, okay, that's it, and I don't have to worry about it ever again, that there's hard answers, there's hard truths, and there's God even saying, I'm not going to answer that, but you have to trust. Sometimes we stand up here and we say with confidence that God is in control despite these tragedies, but it's, it's still hard to believe. It's still hard to understand. And, and no one who stands up here and says that claims that it's just that easy, simple answer. But there is faith. So the book of Habakkuk, just for a little backstory, was written at the end of the 600s B.C., um, in the time of the divided kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And Habakkuk is writing in Judah in probably right after the reforms of King Josiah. Uh, now, King Josiah was one in the, of the last in the line of kings in the nation of Judah, and he saw wickedness in the nation, and he saw that the people had fallen away from God, and they had put up idols, they had put up temples to false gods, and Josiah found the book of the law, found the word of God, and read it before the people, and reformed the nation, and tore down the idols, and brought the people back to God. And it was an awesome time for that nation, for the nation of Judah, but it lasted just a short period. In fact, almost as soon as Josiah was gone, the next king put the idols right back up, erected the temples to false gods right away, did the very things that God warned his people not to do, that God commanded his people to be separate from the nations and, and totally these evil kings disregarded. So Habakkuk is writing during that time period, probably right after the reforms of Josiah, and he's seeing, he maybe even tasted what it was like the way that it should be, what it was like under Josiah and how God intended for his nation to function. But now, under probably the reign of King Jehoiakim, who was an evil king, he sees what he describes in chapter 1 as just wickedness, as just evil all around, and, and evil to the point where neighbor is fighting with neighbor, and everything that you look around and you see violence. And Habakkuk, the book looks forward, Habakkuk writes about, along with some of his contemporaries like Nahum and Jeremiah, of God's coming judgment through the nations, through conquering nations who would come and bring God's judgment onto Israel and Judah. Habakkuk is arranged in a, a Hebrew literary device called a chiasm, which has parallels at the beginning and the end, and it kind of forms a, a, a triangle to point you to one central point. It all revolves around one central idea in the book of Habakkuk, and that is in chapter 2 and verse 4. Chapter 2 and verse 4 says, Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but, and this is the key phrase, the righteous shall live by his faith. The righteous shall live by his faith. That is what this book is about. Some commentators have said that this phrase here could be applied as the central theme of all of Scripture. 
This phrase here is quoted three times in the New Testament. Paul uses it as the purpose statement for the book of Romans in Romans chapter 1. That the righteous shall live by his faith. So in this question and answer dialogue between the prophet and God, the big questions of why are asked. It is arranged in three sections, question and answer, question and answer, and then a vision of God as conqueror and a song of praise. So the beginning, the first part, is the question of why is there so much wickedness within the nation, within God's chosen people? God, why do you allow your people to live in sin and rebellion and conflict? Why can't it be like it was like we saw that you designed it to be, how the nation lived in worship for you, but now neighbor is in conflict against neighbor. And look at Habakkuk's perspective in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, when he says, Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous and justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk's perspective, notice the me and the I. God, why have you left me alone? Why do I have to look at this? Why do I have to see this? It's so heartbreaking to me. Habakkuk is having a moment not just of disappointment in sin, but a moment like Elijah had. If you remember the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal on the top of the mountain, and there's this showdown between Elijah, the prophet of God, and the prophets of Baal, and there's the praying and the calling down of fire, and it's this great moment of victory of God, and it's a mountaintop experience, literally. And Elijah speaks for God and calls down fire from heaven. And then in the very next chapter... He's on the run for his life. The evil queen Jezebel has put a bounty out on his head, and he's hiding. He's in hiding in the desert, and he calls out to God and says, Oh, God, I'm scared. I'm alone. I alone am left, and they seek my life. Kind of a woe-is-me moment. It's all about me, and I'm the only one trying here. Why have you made me stand in this evil and dark place? Why do you make me idly look at wrong? But applying the theme of Habakkuk to this first question, when no one else will, the righteous shall live by faith. When no one else will do it, the righteous shall live by his faith. God's answer in the next part of chapter 1 is that, yes, I have seen the wickedness of the people. Yes, I understand what is going on, and I'm doing something about it. Look over there. I'm raising up that bitter and hasty nation, the Chaldeans, also known as the Babylonians. And God is preparing the Babylonian Empire, bringing them, allowing them to come to power so they will come in just a few short years and wipe out the nation and take the remnant into captivity. God says, yes, I see wickedness and I'm bringing the evil Babylonians as my judgment. Justice will be painful 
and quick. In verse 11 of chapter 1, it describes them. They go on, they sweep like the wind, and they go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. They have made ultimate that which is not ultimate. They have made their own might their God. Worshiping anything that is not God as God is idolatry. This is the definition of idolatry, and this is a theme that we're going to look at throughout the book. But these bitter and hasty Babylonians are strong. They're conquerors. They have military prowess, and they know it, and they think, I have the power. And they worship their own power and their own might, the power within and I was, as I was studying this week, I was struck by the idea of worshiping the power within. And I see in our world today great parallels to that idea. No, we do not live in a time where we're going to hop in our chariots and go conquer the nation next door and take people into captivity. But you are being told from many different directions and sources that the power is within you, that the divine is within you, that the ultimate is within you, that you are smart enough, that you are good enough, that you are powerful enough. We live in a time of this postmodern, no truth, some kind of spiritual mysticism, humanism, that you are what is ultimate. But by the way, you are not. You are like me. And in your natural self, in my natural self, I am filled with sin and darkness and selfishness and lust and pride. Within me is no truth. My heart is deceptive above all things. Within me is no power. I don't have control over anything. I am not ultimate. But these Babylonians worshipped their own power, worshipped the power within themselves. And this is God's answer to the first question. He's bringing judgment on the wickedness in Judah from the evil and torturous Babylonians. Sure, yeah, okay. God's going to punish that little bit of wickedness, that evil within Judah, with the totally depraved and torturous Babylonians. So now, naturally, Habakkuk has a question. Wait, what? <laughs> that what? It's, I, I get this picture. I love this picture. So I got my hands full. I got a binder and books and things, and I drop my pen. And then I bend over to pick my pen, and everything falls out of my binder. But my father had a saying, the guts are falling out of everything. This is the idea that I, that I picture Habakkuk. Like, Wait, I asked a simple question about the one thing, and now... What? You're bringing total destruction with the wicked, wicked Babylonians? How is that fair? That's not fair. Verse 13 of chapter 1 says, You who have purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? How can you use the more wicked, the more evil, 
to judge the wickedness within Judah. Is that how life's going to go? Is that what this world is about? Is the world just keep filling up with more and more people only so that more and more people can be abused and tortured and taken advantage of and killed? Why do you allow so much life to grow if you're just going to allow it to be snuffed out? This is the picture in, in one, chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Habakkuk likens the world to a sea being filled up with fish and the wicked one dragging his nets, scooping them up. It's not fair. It's not fair. God, why? Why? How could you allow this? How could you sit by and idly look at wickedness? And again, we see the concept of idolatry. In chapter 1, verse 16, the wicked sacrifices to his nets and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. The wicked now is worshiping his tools, worshiping the things which have made him rich and given him a good life. That's, that's not fair. God, why do you allow this? Why do you allow the wicked and idolatrous to triumph over the righteous? There's similar questions in the psalm, Psalm 73, where the psalmist asks, I have seen the futility of the righteous and the prosperity of the wickedness of the wicked. And, and it almost made me give up. It almost made me throw in the towel and say, why am I doing this? Why am I even trying if you just simply reward the wicked and the righteous have to suffer persecution and abuse? God, why? To me, this gives, gives me a, a picture of Hugh Hefner. You know who Hugh Hefner is? The founder of Playboy magazine. I can think of no one more wicked with a more wicked influence on the world than Hugh Hefner. His, his, his life's work has been detrimental to our country, to our world in general. And what was Hugh Hefner's life like? He lived rich, respected. People wanted to be him. People wanted to be around him. He did whatever he wanted. He lived a life of ease and pleasure. God, how could you allow that? How could you allow the wicked to prosper while the righteous suffer? God, why? How can you let the wicked swallow up the one more righteous, the one who's at least trying to follow you? And then here, Here's one of my favorite parts. Habakkuk asks this question. This is the end of chapter 1. And he thinks to himself, you know what? That's a really good question. And so in verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, I'm going to stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out and see what he's going to say to me. How is he going to answer that complaint? He's like, okay, why? That's a really good question. What are you going to say about that? What do you have to say to that, huh? Life's not fair. The wicked prosper. The righteous suffer. 
Why? How are you going to answer me in that? What could you possibly say to that? And here we get immediately to the heart of the message. God is going to respond. He's going to answer in his own way. But first, he says this three verses that form around the one central phrase of our idea, of our main thought. Read with me chapter 2, verses 2 through 5. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up, it's not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nation and collects as his own all peoples. First of all, I understand. I know what's going on around you. I see the arrogant one who's puffed up. But here's what I say to you. Live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Yes, there are wicked who appear to prosper. They stand on shaky ground. But you are called. You have been chosen. You are my called out ones. You are the righteous who I have made righteous. Live by faith. Live by faith. Verse 5 and these surrounding verses are sometimes hard. You see it couched all around this one phrase. But verse 5 shows dramatic contrast to that idea. Verse 5 shows the drunk, the proud, and the greedy. And these three, three things I would say to you are controlling influences. They are things which take hold of your life and drive who you are. That drunkenness affects Literally, we have science about how it affects your decision-making. It affects who you are and what you do. And the proud have to get more. The arrogant man, it says, is never at rest. He's controlled by his pride. And the greedy always needs more. Will never be satisfied. These are controlling influences and it's the opposite of a life lived by faith to be controlled by substances or base desires so first of all god answers live by faith that is my call to you live by faith and then he answers and he goes on after in verse six yes life seems unfair but let me worry about justice because there will be justice there absolutely will be justice. God will win in the end. He will deal with wickedness. And we get to see hints of it. We get to see little glimpses of how that works. We get to see that the greedy person is never satisfied. That he still maintains that hole in his heart and is desperate for more. Will do anything. Will... We'll, shape his life around getting more stuff no matter what it takes. That the arrogant people will have those they have abused turn on them. 
that the dishonest will have shame on their family, that the violent live by the sword and die by the sword. We see the glimpses of God's judgment, of God's justice. But God says, let me worry about it. I see eternity. You may see a life lived 80 years of apparent pleasure, but ultimately I will set things to rights. People may even build up wealth and possessions, but does it last? We can see that. We even know that instinctively. We see it around us that wealth doesn't last. It talks in chapter 2 about building up stone and wood and how it's all going to fall apart. You can't take it with you. I love, there's a poem in the 20th century um, called Ozymandias by Percy Shelley. Um, And it's the scene of an explorer in the desert, and he comes across the, the ruins of a statue. And it's just two legs and a plaque with an inscription. And, and all around is desert, just sand. And, and the inscription reads, I am Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Like, what a great picture of might and power and wealth on earth. We, we have no idea who this Ozymandias is or was. And your works, which apparently were so evident at the time of the construction of your statue, are just sand and dust at this point. The New Testament puts it this way, that moths and rust destroy. There is no success in this life, no worldly possessions or things we can accomplish which will last, which have effects on real reality. But God is. God is eternal. God does not fade away. He holds the future. He will win. And to make him our life's goal, to make him our treasure, will last not just 80 years, but forever. Eternity. Numbers so big you can't even imagine. We will continue to sing as we sung this morning. We may have sung it a thousand times, but I'm going to sing it even more and more and again and again and again forever. Chapter 2, verse 14 talks about God's inevitable victory. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. There will be a time when everything is made right. When everyone knows without any kind of question that God is God and he is in control. See, God here answers the problem of evil as he always does in Scripture. In places like Job and Psalm 73 and others, his answer is, I am in control. I am God. And that is the answer. I know what I'm doing. That he is so far beyond our imagination so much more powerful, more wise, and more sovereign. 
We can't even comprehend it. We wouldn't even understand it if we saw it. He will bring ultimate justice on the wicked. The world will be put to rights. There will be a time when there's no more pain and no more suffering and no more death and he will wipe every tear from every eye and his, the knowledge of his glory will cover the earth completely. And we look forward to that day and we read the news this morning and we say, even so, come Lord Jesus. Let me worry about it, he says. I see eternity. There's more going on than you understand. There's deeper reality, real reality. And the wicked will run into their own justice. They will, head, they will run headlong into their own justice. They may think that they've had success, but they will ultimately fall right into what they have prepared for themselves. I love the parallel here with Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 is where Paul quotes that the righteous shall live by faith. He uses it in verse 16 of, of Romans chapter 1 as his purpose statement. And then the next half of chapter 1 of Romans is about how the wicked will run into their own destruction. About how God's judgment on them is to give them over to their desires. To give them over to their lusts and to their greed, and to their violence. And they run into their own destruction. And back in Habakkuk, the end of this section, the end of God's answer is about idolatry and the foolishness of idolatry. In chapter 2, verses, starting in verse 18, he says, What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Arise, and to a silent stone, Arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver. There's no breath in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. Can you carve something out of wood and ask it to give you wisdom? Can you create something with stone and ask it to give you life? How foolish that is. Anything which is not ultimate by nature cannot hold up in the ultimate place in your life. You cannot seek anything from that which is not God. There's an author uh, David Foster Wallace. He um, wrote some books, was literature and a professor, and, and he wrote a speech one time that talked about worship. And he talked about how everybody worships. And he said, this is something that's weird but true. Everybody worships. Now, he himself was not a believer, but what he said was so profound in his admonition to worship something outside of yourself. Worship something that can hold up to the ultimate place in your life. And here's what he says. Pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. 
And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. It will eat you alive. Now Wallace cannot put his finger on why this is true, on why this is. But here in our passage is why that is. There are no answers in anything that is not God. There is no life that comes from anything that is not God himself. Nothing else even is alive apart from God himself. But, as verse 20 says, the Lord is. He exists. He is real. He is in his holy temple. He rules from his throne on high. Let all the earth keep silent before him. No one else can have anything to say. God is real. He is ultimate. And in him is real life and meaning, absolute truth, unconditional love, hope, Family, joy, God is in complete control, and the righteous shall live by faith in him. In Habakkuk 3, we see now that the prophet realizes God's truth. He writes a prayer and then a psalm of praise. First, he sees in chapter 3 a vision of God as conqueror. He sees Some would say a theophany, an appearance of Christ as conqueror, as deliverer, as all-powerful one. He is unparalleled, and the vision of him is somewhat terrifying. The power that God holds is almost disturbing that he stands and no one can stand before him, that the mountains break forth at his word, that the rivers overflow and split through the hills, that his wicked stand before him and pestilence runs over them. God is ultimate conqueror, and the true vision of his power is terrifying. The true ultimateness of who he is, we can't even comprehend. This is why people fall down in fear. This is why the idea of fear of the Lord is something in Scripture. That when people see even angels who represent God, they fall down in fear. That to see God's power is a terrifying thing. And He will win. And He always has in mind His plan of salvation. Look at chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. He has in mind that he will preserve the plan of salvation for his people. That no matter what happens, no matter the Babylonian conquest, the captivity of the people of Israel, no matter the Romans conquering and occupying the land, no matter what happens, God's plan will come through. He will fulfill the promise that he made to Abraham that through his offspring, through his singular, through the one offspring, all nations would be blessed. That there would come according to the promise that he made to King David, one from his line who would sit on his throne and rule forever, that God is preserving his plan of salvation. 
So Habakkuk, don't worry. I've got things under control. And Jesus will come. Jesus will come. And he will open the doors. He will kick open the doors and make a way for you to live that righteous life. He will make a way for you to come back to the presence of God, to be God's chosen and holy people. Jesus is coming. And he will reign forever. Then the book ends with the understanding of the deeper real reality. It's a beautiful poem in verses 17 through 19. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. The world that Habakkuk lived in was an agrarian society. People were probably mostly farmers and shepherds. And so Habakkuk uses this imagery that if everything that we have fails, if everything that I spend my life doing falls to pieces, if my occupation and vocation, if my profits, even if my sustenance, the things I need to live this earthly life, if everything fails and falls away, I can have joy. I can have joy in the presence of God, in who God is. We can have this joy, joy like the earth, early Christians had, singing hymns on the way to martyrdom. Joy like the apostles had, rejoicing while being beaten and imprisoned. Joy like Stephen had when he saw a vision of God and asked to forgive those stoning him to death. This is a joy that is different than happiness and so much deeper than our circumstances. It is a joy that we can have in the midst of pain and loss and unfairness. A joy in who God is, in his salvation and in his strength, in letting him be ultimate in our lives. Joy in the provision that he gives us, not just the food and water we need to survive on earth, but the very things our soul needs to have life. This is what it means to live by faith, to trust that God is sovereign and to have that influence every action that we take. To trust that he is with us when we feel alone and let that inform all of our decisions. To trust that he is aware of what is going on when life is not fair and to not give up. To know that no matter what happens, God is in control. He's the only one worthy of the ultimate place in our hearts. As Paul quoted in Romans, talks about righteousness. We receive life and are made righteous simply by believing in God. Simply by faith we are justified before him. And that same faith, that same faith is to characterize our lives, to be the defining and driving truth of who we are, of what we're about. A scholar that I read this week, Gowan, said it this way, this does not merely tell us how we can barely hang on to some feeble thread of existence in times such as Habakkuk described. No, it speaks of being richly 
and fully alive. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for who you are. God, thank you that you are in control, that you sit on your throne in heaven and you sovereignly rule, that you know every detail of our lives and every moment of our suffering, and it breaks your heart. It breaks your heart to see life which you created, which you made sacred, be thrown away. God, it breaks your heart, but you have a plan. You have a greater plan. May we as a people live lives characterized by our trust in that fact, by our faith in you. May you hold the ultimate place in our hearts, in our lives. God, may we shine as lights in our darkened world that there can be hope that no matter how dark the world gets, there can be life and life everlasting, that you have come, that we can have life to the full. God, kick out the places in my life that I have set up as idols, that I have made more ultimate than you. God, thank you that no matter what happens, you are and always will be. In Jesus' awesome name, amen. Will you stand with me as we respond by singing in Christ alone?